over the last um, several weeks now, a couple months, we've been going through the book of Acts. Acts is a book about the early church. Um, and so this is the church that soon after Jesus was uh, crucified, buried, and then he rose again. Just a few uh, weeks later, really, Acts jumps in and continues the story that we hear in the Gospels. We find the early stages of the church in Jerusalem as this church is gathering and this church is reaching people with the good news of the Gospel of Jesus, teaching those who had never heard that he had come and that he was killed for their sins and raised to life in fulfillment of what God had promised for years and years and years. Incredible story. The forgiveness of sins made available through the work of Jesus Christ. And so now we come into the book of Acts, and the church begins to gather, and the church is growing. People are hearing this good news, and they're responding to it. And so the church in Jerusalem has grown dramatically. And in fact, uh, in Acts chapter number 2, we find that 3,000 are added to the church. And just a little bit later, we find that many more were added to the church. We find over and over again that this church is just growing and is moving, and the Holy Spirit of God is working in lives. This incredible stuff is happening in Jerusalem specifically on this day. As we continue to look at it, what do we find? We see uh, coming into chapter number six, um, there are some things that are taking place. The enemy has tried to uh, dissuade and turn away these apostles time and time again. We find that they've been arrested. They've been beaten. They have been, uh, had all these things taken place in their lives, and yet they refuse to quit preaching Jesus. What a great testimony that is. No matter what's happening around them, they begin, they, they refuse to stop preaching Jesus. But here's what we find in chapter number six. The church is increasing in number. In fact, we see that in the very first verse in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. And so we see that the church is continuing to reach people who are becoming followers of Jesus. And this cycle is continuing to move forward. But can I tell you this? And this is not a secret. All right. This is just a strategy. When the church moves forward, so do its enemies. When the church moves forward, so do its enemies. You see, the enemy of the church, uh, Satan, the devil, he does not desire to just sit on the sideline and watch the church of Jesus Christ move forward. Um, let me maybe paint the picture this way. Anyone ever meet someone a little overcompetitive? How many of well, let me? I'm just going to say this. If you didn't raise your hand, if you've never met someone who's overcompetitive, maybe you're overcompetitive. I know that might be a revelation to some of you. I can remember um, I was with um, a few guys. I got invited last year to go up to the um, Michigan-Hawaii game. And uh, I was with some friends, and we, um, we got up to Ann Arbor early, and we parked the cars, and we were just um, we were doing some really basic tailgating, just kind of waiting for it to game to for them to begin to let people into the stadium, you know, eating ribs, doing our thing, right? And one of the guys decides, hey, let's play some cornhole. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm not good at it, but I'll play some cornhole, right? Uh, because that's what Midwesterners do before football games. So we go out, we're playing some cornhole. Um, so the only problem with that, and I say problem loosely, was one of the friends is um, he, he's retired now, but he spent years as a professional athlete at a very high level. Um, and so he, in this group, so there's four of us, and one of the guys is a professional athlete. I had never done anything competitive with him before. 
Did I tell you there's a reason professional athletes are professional athletes? They are the most competitive people you will ever meet. We are playing cornhole. There's nothing on the table. There are no stakes. It's all bragging rights. And he is just like, he and I are on the same side of the set. And he's just, he's just zeroed in. Every time it's our turn to, to toss, he gets quiet. You see his eyes kind of begin to narrow. You see him getting the, the bag just, I mean, it was just, it was intense. It was the most intense game of cornhole that I have ever participated in. And can I tell you, it wasn't even close, but he didn't care. Because he was cut, this is the most cutthroat cornhole game I've ever seen. Okay? Do you think the enemy, and cornhole's this, this, it's a thing, right? It's just casual, it's just fun. If we think that there's no such thing as too competitive in those areas, listen, Satan's not going to sit idly by while the church of Jesus Christ moves forward. He doesn't say, oh, well, that's interesting that God is doing a work over there. I'm just going to let that take place. No. He is much too, um, there's so many adjectives I could throw in here, um, much too uh, competitive. We could continue with that. Um, he, he desires the destruction of the movement of God so much that he's not going to just watch as the church of God continues. He's not looking at Jerusalem and saying, man, I have no hope here. But instead, he tries whatever he can to infiltrate the people of God. And when we come to Acts chapter number six, we actually find a few of his strategies that he uses, the tactics of the enemy that he uses against the early church. Now watch what he says, watch what uh, the author of Acts writes to us. Because in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so there was a real problem here. I'll talk more about that in a moment. There was a real problem here in that there were certain of those that were being neglected at this time or that their needs were not being met. But what do we find immediately? We don't find that these individuals brought it to the attention of the apostles or these individuals. The word that's actually used here, this word complaint, is only used a few times in the New Testament. And it's always in a light that Paul, for example, says, don't let there be any murmurings, any complaints among you. And this is very different than coming into seeking a resolution. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, if you're interested. And so contrast this with bringing attention to the appropriate people, because when the apostles hear about it, what do they say? They say, well, yeah, this is a problem. And so we're going to solve it. And so as we look at this, what we find is we find this solution-based thinking that's coming from the apostles to combat the division that's beginning to take place. And understand this with me. Division is not merely a difference of opinion or seeing things that are wrong and need to be corrected. Those are natural and normal because why? You and I, we all, none of us, I should say, can see everything that's going on, can we? And so are there needs that are ever going unmet in the lives of people around us? Yeah, because we don't see all of that. You and I, we, have, we are focused on our range of things. But what we see here is we see it's not just a matter of, hey, apostles, hey, people, we need to see this and we need to be better here. What we actually see is watch what took place. And in fact, uh, the complaint wasn't even against the apostles. There was a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. And so what we see is we see that factions are beginning to form within the early church. Division, you see, isn't a difference in opinion. Division is us versus them. 
And so this group of what's called here the Hellenists, or in some of your translations, maybe it's the Grecians, begin to say, well, they don't care as much about us. And when we begin to put into terms them and us, that's problematic. That's divisive. That's not how the body of Jesus is meant to function. You see, what we are is we are us. And so it's not those and ours. It is we together are the body. And so what's taking place here is this group of people that is called the Hellenists or the Grecians, depending on your translation. These are uh, believers that are from a more Greek background. And so maybe they're coming into Jerusalem. Maybe they moved back at some point in the last couple of decades. Their family, their roots are in another part of the world. And so they primarily have adopted Greek culture. They primarily have adopted a lot of just the Greek way of doing things. Some of them may be Gentiles, but the implication is that many of them were Jewish, just kind of more Greek Jews. And so as they come back in, it's possible that they don't speak a whole lot of Aramaic or Hebrew, which are the languages used by the Jewish populations. It's possible that their dialogue is still primarily, their language is still primarily Greek. And so if you speak primarily Greek... And the other Jews in the area, even the Christian Jews, speak primarily Aramaic and read in Hebrew. Well, who are you going to be spending most of your time with? Other people who speak Greek, right? And so certainly they would do certain things together and they would worship together at times. But there begins to be this divide between the Grecians and the Hebrews or the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And so during this period of time, somewhere in the Hebrew camp, they began to take care of the widows by making sure that they had meals provided. And we're speaking of widows in this term. We're speaking of people who had no children that were living and able to provide for them. We're speaking of people who had no husband that were living, no savings that existed, people that were unable to provide for themselves, these widows. They were not able to go out and work, and they had significant needs. And so some of these Hebrew Christians have begun to, what's implied here is they've begun to make sure that their needs were getting met. But in the middle of all of that, there were Grecian and Greek Hebrews, or Greek uh, Jewish believers, that their needs were not being met. And is that, is that something that needs to be remedied? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why when the apostles hear it, they say, that's a problem. And we don't know why that problem arose or how it came about. Some speculate that this distribution was taking place at the temple, and so the Hebrew believers were going to the temple more often. We don't know. We don't know. But the problem, what we do see is that when the problem comes to light, the apostles don't say, well, that's a them problem. Neither do they look at the Hebrews and say, what's wrong with you guys that you guys weren't meeting needs? But what do they do? They said, oh, There needs to be a remedy here. And so the enemy enters and tries to divide. And there really was something that needed attention. And as the apostles begin to discuss and look at this needs that need to be met, they also become aware that there's a possibility that even in meeting this need, the enemy is going to have their way within the body. Because watch what they say. The 12, this is the apostles, they summoned the full number of disciples. And so they called a church meeting. And this is what they say. Said, hey, we know what's going on. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
And so he says, listen, our priority has to be on the Word of God. It's not okay for us to stop working through the Word of God so that we can, we can serve tables and make sure that the food is being met. But notice what they don't say is they don't say, hey, this isn't, this isn't a problem. They don't diminish it. They don't look down on it. They just say, this isn't, we cannot be the ones handling this. And so they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Notice they give these qualifications of these seven men. They say, of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. And so what we see is the apostles gather together and they say, listen, the priority of the body must be the word and prayer. We have to keep the mission in view. Because understand this, the wrong solution would have led to a distraction within the body. And so not only a division, but now there's a solution that's in view. And okay, well, why don't the apostles just make sure this is... And they say, listen, listen, this needs to be taken care of. But if we put all of our resources into this, we're missing our mission. And so we might have full bellies, but empty hearts. And so he says, that's, that's not okay. That's not okay. And so what do they do? They look out and they said, hey, we need, for this purpose, for right now, we need seven men. Give us seven men. And we don't know exactly why seven men in this. Perhaps each of them took a day. Perhaps they thought the seven would be able to uh, take care of all of the needs. We don't know why seven specifically. But they call these seven men out. And what's the responsibility that they give to these seven men? They said, this is what we need to do. We should not give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And so let's look for these men to come alongside and to help with this. Um, that phrase there, serving tables, uh, that word serving is actually, it's a Greek word that is diakonos. And so today, that's where uh, many churches, we get that word deacon from that same word. It's serving, servants. And so what we see is we see that these men are called out to minister specifically to those in need. And watch what he says at the same time, because I think this is really, really interesting. As they continue through this, uh, we see this word, the 12 summoned the full number in verse 2 of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Watch verse number 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry. What's really interesting here is that word ministry here is anybody want to want to guess? It's also diakonos. So these men are going to serve tables, and we are going to serve spiritual food. And so we're going to continue to meet this need by serving physical needs and by serving spiritual needs. And so they take this and they said, "Hey, we're going to take these seven men, point them in this direction, because we have to commit ourselves to the preparation of spiritual food." And that's what the apostles were committed to the preparation of the spiritual food. But here's what we have to understand as we come into this. A divided or distracted church in this space may be less effective than a destroyed church. You see, the enemy had tried to destroy the church over and over again, right? Had tried to take away the apostles who were preaching the word, arrested, beaten, threatened. How can I just get rid of And then the enemy shifts gears and says, how can I divide and how can I distract from the mission? Because understand with me, a destroyed church, it just ceases to exist, right? It ceases to exist. A divided church 
actually hinders the mission of God. You see what takes place? And there are so many, and I've talked to many of you in this room, that we have this, we've been around the divided church. And you know who wins in a divided church? The enemy. No faction in a divided church wins. They all lose. And so what happens here? A destroyed church at least ceases to exist, but a divided church hinders the mission. It actually causes a step backwards. A distracted church, meanwhile, takes resources away from the mission. And so all of a sudden, this thing that's not the mission takes precedence over the mission. But what we find here is that instead of allowing these things to happen, the leaders in the church, they come and they say, hey, listen, we need to find the right men for the job, and we need to give them this responsibility. Watch what he says. He says, seven men of good repute, so good reputation. We know, we see, we have walked with these men. They are full of the spirit. They're full of wisdom, and we're going to hand them this duty. Meanwhile, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen. Notice the reiteration here. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Simone and Parmenas. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And many speculate that these first men who were called into the service were men that had some uh, Greek, Grecian, Hellenist influence. It's especially pointed out there with Nicholas. When it says he's a proselyte of Antioch, here's what that means. Nicholas wasn't even Jewish. He was from Antioch. He was Greek through and through. And so now he has placed his faith in Jesus Christ and become an integral part of this early church. And so what happens as they call these men out? They set them before the apostles in verse 6. They prayed. They laid their hands on them. And watch what happens in verse 7. As they avoid the, the dangers, the pitfalls of both division and distraction, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even watch this, a great many of the priests, the religious Jews, became obedient to the faith. How incredible is this? What we find is that the work of God happens through the word of God. Because now as the path is cleared for the mission to go out, the word of God increased. You know what that means? Is that means more and more people we're talking about engaging in the Word of God. There were more that were teaching and being taught the Word of God, because that's the mission, right? And so the Word of God was increasing. And more and more, wherever you went, you couldn't find a place where the Word of God was not going forward and going forth, because the people began to press into this mission even more as a result of these decisions made. And so the word increased, and the disciples multiplied. And notice what it says, multiply greatly. There are times when in the scriptures we see they were added to the church. Even in verse number one, the disciples were increasing in number. And that's a positive thing. And now it goes from increasing in number to they were multiplying greatly. How incredible is that? And so we see God's work being done God's way, and we see the fruit that God brings about as a result of it. 
But as we said, the enemy doesn't just sail away quietly into the night. The enemy doesn't just say, I've been bested. No. The enemy comes back more and more. And so he said, I've tried destroying once. I've tried destroying twice. I've tried destroying a third time. I have tried to divide. I have tried to distract. And now the enemy comes in and says, it's time to pull out all the stops. Watch what happens next. Stephen, this man, notice how he's defined. It said that he's full of wisdom, that he is full of the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, he's full of faith. Now he's full of grace and power. He's doing wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cretans, uh, Cyrenians, excuse me, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And so Stephen's doing this, he's ministering, he's somehow involved in the teaching ministry of the church, whether it be publicly or privately, one way or another, he is involved in this. And then these men, this group begins to form. And notice this is an eclectic group. This isn't just like a couple of people. These are people from this synagogue called the one of the freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, Cilicia, Asia. So there's multiple factions coming together. And they rose up and they began to dispute with Stephen. But watch in verse number 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Uh, this is, again, likely that, that same Sanhedrin that we read about just a chapter before, the Jewish leader. So they bring him before this council. And what do they do? They come with this accusation. Verse number 13, they set up false witnesses because they couldn't find true witnesses. They find those willing to lie on their behalf. And these came in and said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so they began to bring these accusations against Stephen. They come and they realize that they have to do something. And so if division and distraction weren't working, they seek destruction. They see Stephen's signs and wonders. He's disputing with the Jews. There's this great wisdom, this great spirit. And just like you remember Jesus, when his enemies would come against him, what do they say? They said they would go and they would bring accusations and bring questions. And every time Jesus turned them away and he refuted and he answered. And they said, we can't come and we can't argue with him. But they refuse to believe. And it happens once again with Stephen now. They begin to investigate him. The people were stirred up. False witnesses are brought out. And we understand that when Satan can't distract or divide, he will try to destroy. And so what takes place? They begin to say, how can we stop the messenger? How can we stop the messenger? See, in verse number 15, we find that as these men are all gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
Here in this era, this book of Acts, we find over and over again that there are men and that there are women that as they're filled with the Spirit of God, God just gives us plain, obvious evidence. Then we find it once again here at the end of Acts chapter number 6. That what Stephen is doing, what Stephen is saying, is what God would have him to do and to say. Next week, as we get into chapter number 7, we're going to see the, the words and the response of Stephen. Stephen preaches a sermon through the Old Testament, chapter 7. In fact, it's the longest recorded speech in all of the book of Acts. And it's just, it's incredibly dense with the scripture. But here's what I want you to see and what I want you to understand. Is that the enemies of Christ, the enemies of his work, they understood this. They could stop the messenger. They could stop the messenger. But let's be honest, they couldn't stop the message. Because the message of Christ, I'm going to spoil this for you a little bit, it didn't end with the persecution of Stephen. They looked around and they said, man, this guy is just causing us all sorts of problems. We must put an end to him. And next week, as we get into chapter number seven, they did. But spoiler, the message of Jesus continued to go forward. The message of Jesus continued to reach people. Because understand this with me. If the messengers are witnesses, we go all the way back to Acts chapter 1. They're witnesses. We find that verse. It's just a key word within the book of Acts. We are witnesses. We are witnesses. We are witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is one who tells others what they have seen. And throughout the book of Acts, we find these witnesses are witnesses to what? To Jesus. He died. He was buried. He rose again for the sins of the world. And they said, this is, this is what we know. Uh, can, I, can I ask you this question? What would it take someone to recant a message knowing that its author was killed and came back to life? And so what we see is we see that these, these individuals, they're working against the message. And sure, could they stop Stephen? Yeah. Yeah. They had to go to extremes to do it. But did stopping Stephen stop the message? No. No. And in fact, we're standing here today because the message of Jesus Christ continued to grow and to multiply. See, as this whole thing is going on, what's happening? Verse number seven, I want to look at this phrase one more time. This is what stirred the people up, is that many, this great multitude, multiplied, and even a great many of the priests, watch this, became obedient to the faith. What's happening there? These individuals, even this company of the priests, they're hearing the word of God, and they're responding to the word of God. And see, as the word of God goes forth, as, the, as it falls on their ears, as they hear and they begin to understand, what do they do? They obey the word of God. They repent. This fancy word that just means they turned around. And instead of following after all the tradition, the ritualism, the religious works, they said, I'm going to be obedient to that. I'm going to follow after that. And they turned their lives and they began pursuing Jesus. How incredible. How incredible. Today, as we're gathered in this room, 
There's a wide swath of different people from around our community. There are differences between our backgrounds, between what we understand. Maybe for some of you, this is your first time in church in years or even forever. Some of you, it's weird if you're not here (laughs) and everything in between. But as we look at the word of God today, can I tell you one thing we all have in common? Is that we're called to respond to it. And as we do so, I think we can respond to this passage in a couple of ways. First of all, if you're in this room and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, embrace this faith. Embrace Jesus. You see, there were men like Stephen for the first century, and even throughout the thousands of years, there have been individuals so committed to this. They were willing to lay down their lives for the opportunity for people like you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we talk about Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, respond to that. As God's working in your heart, as the Holy Spirit is moving things inside of you, respond to the word of God. Maybe today you're in here and you say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Can I tell you this? The enemy has a target on your back. Don't give in. See, the enemy is going to try to divide. He's going to try to separate you from other believers. That's what a predator does. And the fact is, is that the scripture tells us our enemy, he's like a roaring lion looking for the one he may devour. Which part of the herd Which part of the flock does the lion pursue? Well, the one that's cut off from the rest. Don't allow yourself to be divided from the body of believers as you pursue Jesus Christ. Maybe the enemy's trying to distract you. He's taking all these things that that could be priorities, and he's saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And so what you find is that your spiritual growth and your spiritual habits and your spiritual formation begins to fall further and further and further and further and further on the list. Because other things have taken its place. Can I encourage you? Don't be distracted by the other stuff. Don't take the bait. Don't go for the cheese. It's a trap. Because your enemy does not want good for you. And so we'll put all those things in the way. Because maybe you're in a place where you're spiritually mature enough to say, I would never be divisive. I don't want to be connected to, but man, there's just a lot on my plate right now. And can I tell you, I get it. I get it. But we have to prioritize and we have to be so careful to make sure that what we're doing is we are prioritizing the way that we can follow after Jesus and continue to be shaped and molded into his image. Don't let the enemy distract you. Don't let him take the resources of your life and pour them into all these other things. And then finally, we understand that if we refuse to be distracted, we refuse to be divided, the enemy is going to come for you. There will be targets that are placed on your back. He does not desire your success. He does not desire your good. And so we have to be aware that our enemy, just like a lion, he is looking and he is prowling and he's seeking the one that he can devour and destroy. But however God is working in your life today, whether you've never placed your faith in Jesus or maybe you're a believer and, and you see some of these traps of the enemy is being, being laid in your life. Here today, I just want to give you a warning and say, hey, don't buy in. Don't buy in. Reject these things and follow Jesus.